Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see so many of you. In case you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is my privilege this morning to preach the word. Let me just take a second to welcome you if you're new. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're thankful that you chose to worship with us this morning. All right, let's turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. As we're making our way through the Psalter, get quite the change of pace today, the change of tone, as you'll see when we read this. We'll read the whole passage, verses 1 through 17 together. And let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness, and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen. In gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes In all the earth, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word and the way it confronts us and convicts us. And especially in this psalm, the way it encourages us by reminding us how you love your church. How your son, the bridegroom, 
sacrificed himself for her and is coming again to bring her to glory. Father, we rejoice knowing that your son has betrothed himself to us forever in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. He has betrothed himself to us in faithfulness so that we might know him and worship him. We pray, Lord, that your word, this psalm, would help us do that even more this morning as we delight in our King and our Bridegroom forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I believe that everyone loves a good wedding. I think if you don't, there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> you might have some serious character flaw going on there we could talk about later. But weddings, weddings are such a blessing in so many ways, especially for the church and all that they represent. Weddings are such a big deal in our culture. We spend so much time and money making that day just unforgettable. From the decorations in the church and the reception hall, down to the music chosen for every little moment to make it special. And of course, the food, the feast, we all get to enjoy together as we fellowship together. Even the groom looks the best he's looked in his entire life. I remember going to weddings and looking at the groom for the first time as he stands in front and thinking, wow, I don't think I've ever seen his hair cut. And style, he looks like he took more than 30 minutes to get ready. He's looking the best that he has ever looked in his entire life. But... That doesn't really matter, because eyes are not on him during that day, are they? We know from the moment she arrives, the bride is the center of attention in our culture, at the weddings we're used to. She even gets a special place, a wedding chamber to get ready in, all decorated so that you can take pictures along the way and have visitors to make the whole day special. Then once the ceremony begins, everyone is seated until she walks in. And they follow her down the aisle and they keep their eyes really on her for the rest of the day. Throughout the ceremony and even on into the reception. And of course she's wearing the most beautiful dress in the world. That would make any Disney princess just jealous. Such a beautiful day. Clearly the bride is the center of attention at the weddings we're used to in our culture. That's fine. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But you might have noticed a contrast here. When we study this psalm, the bride is not the center of attention in this royal wedding. The center of attention is the groom. The bride doesn't even show up until more than halfway through the psalm, starting in verse 10. And I like, as Christopher Ash says, when he finally addresses the bride, it's only to give her a firm talking to, to exhort her and give her advice. All the attention at this royal wedding is on the king, is on this glorious bridegroom. And why is that? Well, because this is no ordinary king. This is not David, this is not Solomon, or one of the other common kings of Israel that we're referring to here. This is none other than the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And this psalm is a celebration of him, of our glorious king and bridegroom, and his relationship to his bride, the church, which is us. 
We will see, if you haven't already, this is a profound description of Christ and his character and his work throughout history. And it's a preview of what will happen when he comes back. It's a preview of what we see at the end of the story, at the end of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. As the superscript says at the very end, it summarizes it perfectly. This is a love song. This is a love song between Christ and his church. Now, I think if we're to understand this love song the way it was intended, we need to stop for a second and actually think a little bit about what ancient wedding customs were like. Because they're a lot different than we're used to. And a lot of this comes from a wonderful little book on a few psalms by a pastor named Walter Chantry. If you want to look it up later, it's only on three psalms. It's a great little book from Banner Truth. But he says, look, marriage begins in the ancient world with betrothal. Kind of like us, right? We have an engagement, but it's much more serious. The families settle on a dowry to be paid for the bride, and then they don't get to marry until the husband, the groom, pays that dowry in full. Kind of wish this was still going on, right, in some ways. So sometimes it would take a long time for that groom to do that. But when the wedding day came, the wedding actually started in two different locations. The groom and his family and friends would all meet at his house, and the bride and her family and friends would all meet at her house as she prepares and gets ready for her groom to come. Then on the wedding day, the groom leads this grand procession, like a parade, right down the street, right to go get his bride. And as soon as he does, she comes out to meet him, and he takes her back to his house. And that's when the celebration begins. That's when the feasts and the ceremonies could last for days, even weeks, depending on if the groom had a high status or wealth. Well, Psalm 45 is a similar wedding ceremony. It's a wedding of cosmic proportions, a wedding that lasts well into eternity, and it follows this same pattern that I'm talking about here. Because you see, Christ came the first time to betroth a bride for himself, his church. He laid down his life to pay the dowry in full. And he returned to heaven to prepare a place for her, to prepare the home for her. And now she is preparing to receive her husband. She is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. She is becoming more and more like what she's meant to be the whole time as she prepares for her groom. And one day Christ will return for that great wedding day. And that's what this psalm is about. We'll see as we walk through this psalm, there are three parts I want to draw your attention to. First, it's describing the approaching king which is Christ leading that procession as the bride gets to see him and describe him. That really is the meat of the passage. We'll spend most of our time talking about Christ. And then secondly, the awaiting bride in verses 10 through 14. What is she doing as she waits for her groom to return? And then finally, a short benediction from verses 15 to 17, a benediction for their future. So there we are, approaching king, verses 2 to 9, the awaiting bride in 10 through 14, and a benediction of their future in verses 15 to 17. But first, the psalmist, before he introduces this king, he introduces himself. Do you notice that in the superscript there? He says, to the choir master, according to the lilies, which I have no idea what that means, a maskil of the sons of Korah. There's our writer. There's a writer. He's a son of Korah. He's literally like the choir master. 
in Jerusalem at this time. That's who David appointed to lead worship. So he's the writer of this song. And look what he says in verse 1 about himself. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That last little phrase, pleasing theme, I think can better be translated a good word. That's very literally there in the Hebrew. A good word. So the psalmist is meditating on God's good word, I believe. Meditating on the promises of God here about God's king. And look at what he says at the rest of verse 1. I address my verses to the king, the great king of the universe, Jesus Christ, the king to come. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Now, this is an interesting statement. He's actually borrowing this from Ezra. Ezra said this about himself as he's studying the scriptures and he's preparing to teach God's word and to prophesy. Now the psalmist borrows it and says, I'm like Ezra. I've been studying the word. I'm ready to prophesy. My heart is just overflowing as I meditate on God's word because I realize God has commissioned me to tell the greatest love story that could ever be told. The psalmist here is almost like giving the best man speech at the wedding. That's kind of what this psalm is. And he's blown away that he gets to talk about this great day to come. And it's not just his friend getting married and his wife. This is his Lord, his bridegroom as well. And so he does this in such a worshipful, joyful place. Let's see what he says. Verse 2, he talks about the approaching king. Now, I better stop and actually say something before we read the verse. The psalmist shifts from talking about himself to really giving us the bride's perspective here. So everything kind of comes from her perspective. If you want to imagine her peeking out the window at her home and she gets a glimpse of her groom coming her way with the whole wedding party behind him and she starts to notice things about her groom and remember who he is and it just blows her away that she gets to marry this incredible man. Remember. The bride is us, the church. This is what we see of our groom, what we long to see one day in person. And so let's see what she says in verse 2. This is the king's beauty. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. I know, guys, it probably makes you feel weird to even think that about yourself, but this is the bride's perspective saying, my Husband-to-be is a good-looking man. We think, well, wait a minute. Is Jesus really just this good-looking guy? Because in Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should ever desire him. So is he a good-looking guy or is he not with no beauty and no glory? It's the interesting part. The answer to that question kind of depends on who you ask. To the world, he was just a common Israelite. You would never have been able to pick him out of the crowd because he is like the common man. To the bride, his church, he is the most handsome man to ever live. Well, why? Because she has been waiting for him for a very long time. The bride has been longing for this groom to come ever since the fall. Genesis 3.15, when we learn that a, a new Adam would come, and crush Satan for good. We don't know what Jesus looks like. He may not have been the most physically attractive person in the world. I kind of doubt it. But he was incomparably beautiful 
to his bride because his beauty was a manifestation of who he was and what he came to do. Let us not forget, he is God incarnate. He displays God's character perfectly in this world. God's beauty perfectly. And he's also the sinless man. The Lamb of God, the unblemished Lamb that will take away the sins of the world. He is what Adam should have been if he never fell. And he's also what we can become in him one day. We are conformed to his image. And it's beautiful, more beautiful than even words could describe. I'm kind of reminded at this moment of kind of when we take pictures. Have you ever taken a picture of of your kids in the precious moment or nature? You know when you take a picture on top of a mountain or a glorious sunset or you capture that moment when your kids start to walk or say something really cute and you get that picture back and you're all excited and you look at it and what do you always say? Just can't do it justice. This moment was so much more glorious than this picture can even communicate. And that's what's happening here with the king's beauty. They can't even put into words how handsome, how glorious this man is because she loves him so much and because he is glorious in who he is and what he's come to do. And we get a little picture of his glorious character in the rest of verse 2 in his words. Look at the middle of verse 2. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Oh, I'm so thankful This king is not like the kings we're used to. Not like the rulers, the politicians in our world, who may be very cleaned up and attractive on the outside. Maybe even attractive from a leadership standpoint. But inside we know they're full of sin and lies and deceit and selfishness. At the end of the day, they care far more about themselves and about their reputation than the people that they are called to lead. This king is different. Grace and mercy and love pours from his lips. It characterizes everything he does. That's why John can say in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only one from the Father. And what does that look like? Full of grace and truth. That's who Jesus is, full of grace and truth. We see that in everything he does. Not just because he was a nice guy. He was merciful. He was gracious. Because he is God in flesh. He is the source of truth. The fountain of grace. Which is why he was so shocking to the world when he became in flesh. When the soldiers went to arrest him and they came back empty-handed. You remember what they said? They said, no one has ever spoken like this man does. No one has ever said the things he says. When Jesus preached his first sermon in Nazareth, in Luke 4, 22, the crowds were amazed. And they were amazed and they said, they're amazed at his gracious words that come from his lips. So different than their teachers that they're used to. So as this bride sees the groom drawing near, she's blown away by his character And reminded of his gracious words towards her. And she's just blown away that she gets to marry this incredible king. What else does she notice about the approaching king? Let's look at, well, verse 3 is is an interesting verse. 
We see the king's victory. But there's an interesting shift here in this. She's reflecting on her king, talking about who he is, but then she starts to command him. Almost like boss him around in a second, and you're thinking, wait a minute, that's a weird thing to do in this moment. Why is she giving him commands? I think what's going on here is kind of like what we do when we're watching sports on TV or watching sports at a, like a, a stadium or something. When we see Kershaw pitching and we're like, come on, strike him out. Right? Or we see, hey, sink that three-pointer in a basketball game. We start yelling at them because we're so excited for them to display their abilities. And we're kind of cheering them on. I think that's what she's doing here. So amazed at her groom, she wants to see him in action. Wants to see him display his glory in a great way. So she starts commanding him in verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Now this is probably not the image you would think of at a wedding. I haven't seen many swords at a wedding, probably for a good reason. But this image here is interesting because it kind of tells us a little bit about who he is. It's appropriate because this king is a soldier. He's a warrior king. And maybe some of us have been to weddings of, say, Marines or other men that are in the service dressed in their full apparel, dressed like they're ready to go to war. And they're looking great, but they're ready for action. And that's the point here. This king is not just all talk. He's ready to go out and claim victory for the things he's talking about, for the cause of grace and truth. And that's what we see in verse 4. She commands him again, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand, your sword hand, your powerful hand, teach you awesome deeds. Now, there's an interesting description of Jesus here, which says truth and meekness and righteousness. We probably don't expect a conquering king to be meek, do we? In fact, I think you can translate meekness and righteousness better, the humility of righteousness. I'm sure if you're like me, you think, well, wait a minute, humility and righteousness don't go together. Because when we're used to thinking about unrighteousness, we're used to thinking about self-righteousness, pride. How can these things go together? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, Moses tells the king, you need a copy of God's word. You need your own copy to study, to spend time in, to trust the Lord, because you don't want to turn from God's word to the right or to the left, so you don't rule over your people like the rest of the kings. Moses actually says, so that his heart, the king's heart, may not be lifted up above his brothers. That's true humility. That's the meekness of righteousness. God's king humbly submits to God's law. He's the king, but he's not the one to say, look, I'm the king, I make the rules. You do what I say, I'm the one in charge. No, he claims victory by submitting himself to God, by embracing the humility of righteousness in a way that we fail to, and by fighting not for his honor, but for the honor of his God. He fights lies with truth, pride with meekness and humility. This king actually lays down his life for his subjects. What kind of king does that? And he fights sin and wickedness with his own righteousness. He gives his righteousness to us. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, this is how this king will rescue his bride. By laying down his life, by destroying the works of the devil. And see, this psalm and this psalmist is looking forward to that great day in faith. We get the privilege, brothers and sisters, to look back as the work of the king has already begun. He's already lived his life perfectly in our place, laying down his life, as Hebrews 4.15 says. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And he died on the cross in our place, laying his life down, rose from the dead again and ascended on high where he rules and reigns forever until he comes back again to claim his bride. Now we are put back in the psalmist's place looking forward to our groom returning to set all things right. And he won't stop until every enemy is put under his feet. Look at verse 5. Your arrows are sharp. They're ready for action. In the heart of the king's enemy, the peoples, and I think better translated, the nations, fall under you. See, this king won't be done until he's claimed victory over the entire world. He will hunt down his enemies and the enemies of his bride, which are Satan's sin and death, to the ends of the earth, so that every knee will bow to him, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's who this king is. We've seen his beauty and his victory, and what happens once he claims that victory? Well, we see the king's reign in verse 6. The king's reign. Look at this, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the place in the psalm where the psalmist becomes crystal clear about who he's talking about. There might have been places in the beginning where you thought, well, maybe this king could be David. Maybe Solomon, they they were kind of good looking. They've done some really righteous thing. But then he says, your throne, O God. And we think, nope, (laughs) nope, there's no way this can be anyone else but Jesus. He's the only one that is truly God. And truly man. And he's the final Davidic king. These are the words that Nathan gave David in 2 Samuel 7, describing his future son. That his throne would last forever and ever. How can this be anybody else but Jesus? It's so abundantly clear. And he continues to describe his reign. Middle of verse 6. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. More pictures of his beauty and his character. Therefore, God, your God, now we're talking about the Father, has anointed you. The Father's made you the Messiah with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What a beautiful description of Christ. No wonder the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 borrows these verses to describe how Jesus is God. He's comparing him to everyone else in creation saying he's in a class of his own. He's better than the prophet. He's better than any of the glorious angels we could possibly imagine because he is God. And in Hebrews 1.3 he continues to describe how he is the radiance of the glory of God. 
the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After purifying his bride, he sits down to rule and reign. This is happening right now, brothers and sisters. He reigns on high. And he will return again to banish sin forever. Look at verse 8, describing his reign even further. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. These beautiful aromas that describe his beauty, that kind of show his beauty. From ivory palaces, the most glorious palaces you can imagine. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Do you see what's happening here? The psalmist is describing the king's throne as if it's already established. As if he's ruling and reigning right now. And he is. His garments are beautiful. His palace is beautiful. Music fills the air. And why is that? Well, because he has brought peace to the land. Peace and gladness. So much so that the daughters of the king are backing him up. Now we know that that process has begun. He is claiming victory over this world. And this waits its final fulfillment one day. Where peace and gladness will be known forever. Don't you long for this? Do you long for this kind of peace? This kind of restoration where Jesus rules and reigns on high? Are you so eager, like me, to be done with sin? Done with the destruction and the temptation involved with sin? Brothers and sisters, relief is on its way. Relief will finally come when the king and the bridegroom comes again. He's already purchased us for himself by the blood of his cross, and he's right on our doorstep. He's the approaching king right now, and he's coming to set everything right. What an incredible king we have. How do we make sure we are ready as he approaches? Let's look now from the approaching king to the awaiting bride. The awaiting bride. Now, we're probably thinking already, who's this lucky girl? Who's this lucky woman that gets to marry this incredible king? And it's kind of shocking at first because the psalmist doesn't even talk about her beauty. Not at all until the very end. He, in fact, goes right to advice, right to exhortation. He kind of turns to her and gives her a little premarital counseling session here. That's what he's doing. And the advice he gives her in verse 10 is to leave and to cleave. The advice we're used to hearing at a wedding. Look at verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. See, there's the leave. Forget your father's house. Leave your home. Leave your old life behind. Leave any competition for your heart, any idols, any old boyfriends. Leave them behind for this king. But don't just leave it behind. Don't just leave, let go, cleave to your husband. Hold on to him. Look at the middle of verse 11. He says, since he is your Lord, bow to him. 
You might think that's strange. Bow to your husband? That's not the way it works. But remember, he's not just her husband. He's her king. He's her Lord. And he's her God. So he says, submit to him. Bow to him. Worship him. You see this picture of leave and cleave. The psalmist is presenting to us, his church, as a picture of repentance. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your past and all those loyalties. And turn towards your bridegroom in faith, trusting him. Leave the world behind you and cling to Christ. Philippians 3, Paul describes it like this. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. This is our calling, brothers and sisters. To leave the world and cling to Christ. We even hear this language in our wedding services, don't we? Forsaking all others, I keep myself only for you. That's our call. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking at this moment, well, this is kind of ridiculous advice. In context here, it doesn't really fit. Who in their right mind would ever, ever even consider leaving a king this glorious, this beautiful? I don't care how good her father's house was. What she had growing up can't even come close to this king and his glory. It would be insane to walk away from all of this. Then I remember this is the exact temptation that each of us face as the bride of Christ, isn't it? We are promised every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Ephesians 1.3, We're promised in Romans 8.32, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We have an inheritance that we can't even describe. That would just blow our minds, yet we are constantly tempted to ask ourselves, is Christ really enough? Is this really going to be enough for me? Will he provide what I think I really need? Will this groom be faithful even when I'm unfaithful? Does he really love me like this? Like the scriptures say, it seems too good to be true. And we think, well, maybe I'll just keep my options open. Start looking around at the world and thinking, well, what does this world have to offer? The psalmist seems to know that the bride is struggling Believing this king is enough, which is shocking. But the psalmist gives her advice, but he also weaves in assurance into the advice to comfort her fears. Look at what he says back in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house. I believe there's a subtle encouragement here that we could just fly right by. And it has to do with who this daughter this bride is remember this bride represents us she used to be part of the sinful kingdoms of this world she was part of the kingdoms that were conquered by this king it was her father's house satan's house that was at war with this king she was born as an enemy of this king how do you expect a king to treat the women of his enemies 
in our world and even in the ancient world, how are women of conquered people treated? We know nothing's changed. Women of conquered kingdoms are treated terribly, shamefully, often abused, taken advantage of. Sometimes they're publicly humiliated to show who's really in charge now. We would never expect a conquering king to respect the women in his enemy's kingdom, to treat them with dignity, to bring them into his own house and call them daughters. See, you're part of my family now. And then to go one step further and choose among them one of those women to make his bride. Shay, I'm going to love you and this is your kingdom now. What kind of king is this? Certainly not a kingdom we're used to seeing or a king we're used to seeing. This is only God's king. This is Jesus Christ, the king of kings. And it says at the rest of verse 10, it says, And the king, Jesus, will desire your beauty. That's a promise to you, church. This king will love you, desire you, is pleased with you. But we need to be careful here. We need to recognize right from the beginning, the king is not desiring this bride because she is beautiful. This is not a Cinderella story. We all remember Cinderella. It's so much a part of our culture now. Cinderella had great character. She had a lot of natural beauty. It was just covered up by her life and circumstances. Once she got all cleaned up, she looked like royalty. She stood out among the royals. It just took a long time for everybody else to see it. That is not the case with this bride. Sad to say, she is about as ugly and destructive as they come. Ezekiel 16 describes her in graphic language. I'm not going to turn there because it's a really long passage, but let me summarize the description of this bride. We don't see it in this psalm. We first find this bride as an unwanted baby, covered in blood, thrown out by her parents, the umbilical cords not even cut off, thrown out like garbage to die. And God finds her. Ezekiel 16.8 says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God found her, cleaned her up, raised her, entered the covenant of marriage with this unwanted woman. And we think, well, wow, there it is. There's the Cinderella story. She got all cleaned up. There's a rough start, but a beautiful ending, right? She might have been cleaned up on the outside, but she was still just as ugly and sinful on the inside. Because when they got married, this is what happened. Ezekiel 16, 15. You trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, anyone that would have you. You took some of your garments, the garments the king gave her, and made for yourself colorful shrines. On them you played the whore. What a terrible tragedy. This bride is a mess. It's anything but beautiful. And we know this to be true, don't we? 
We know the ways that God describes our depravity. We know our own sinful heart. And we look around at the church. Sometimes we recognize the church is ugly, divided, sinful. Yet this is the bride this king loves in Psalm 45. He didn't wait for her to get cleaned up. He loves her and desires her even in her sin. And it was his love and his blessing and his sacrifice for her that finally made her beautiful. Look back at verse 12 in Psalm 45. It says this, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. What made her so beautiful? Robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Do you notice what made this bride beautiful? It wasn't her incredible smile, her amazing good looks. It wasn't even her character. It was her gown. It was the garments that were a gracious gift from her king. And we find out that it's the king that gives these garments all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The New Testament, Ephesians 5, Paul describes it like this. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for us, that, we might, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. See what Christ has done for us? He's taken what was despised, rejected, sinful. He's taken his very own enemies and even her rags of sin, her garments of sin, and he's exchanged those garments for garments of righteousness, garments of salvation. What a Savior. What a King we have. Let me look lastly at these few verses. We've seen the approaching king, the awaiting bride. We have to hear the end of the story, don't we? And that's this beautiful benediction in verse 15 to 17. So first, the psalmist gives us the end of the story. He says, with with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So this is the end of the story I was talking about. The groom was on his way. He comes to pick up his bride. She comes out to meet him, all decked in the garments that he provided. He takes his bride. He returns to his palace. And they go in together as a new couple, as one. And then the celebration begins. I mean, this is the place where Disney would say they lived happily ever after, isn't it? The psalmist has much better benediction than that. Look at verse 16. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Now it's a bit challenging here to know who is being addressed. 
It just says you, and in English, you could be male or female. It could be like he or she. It doesn't really have a nature there. But in Hebrew, this is a masculine pronoun. So it seems like the prince, the king, is the one being addressed here. That would make sense. But then again, it says your father's which she was exhorted in verse 10 to leave her fathers. And it seems like now her fathers have been replaced by her sons. So who are we talking to here? Well, I believe this line, this benediction, is a blessing for both the bride and the groom. For one, it takes a husband and a wife to produce God the offspring. It takes two for that. And similarly, we address couples in our world in this way, even at the end of a wedding ceremony, don't we? I mean, it wasn't just maybe a month ago that Jason announced for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Bryce Hepner. And we all clapped and applauded because even though the husband was addressed, both of them were addressed. I think that's what's going on here. This blessing is for both of them. And what's the blessing? That they would have children. That these children would be princes in all the earth. This would lead to verse 17, which I think is really directed at the king. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is a promise of worship, praise, and glory. This is not just a promise that you're going to have lots and lots of kids. That's part of it. That will cover the earth. These kids, these offspring, will rule and reign in God's place. They will honor the Lord. I hope your mind immediately goes back to Genesis 1. We haven't been out of Genesis that long, but Genesis 1, 28, God gives Adam and Eve a command to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth. That was a plan to have godly offspring, godly image bearers cover the earth. But Adam failed. He produced idolaters to cover the earth. The first Adam failed, but the second Adam, the last Adam, will not. It's the union between Christ and the church that will produce the spiritual offspring that God intended in creation. It is this union that restores creation, glorifies God to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is our glorious future. I know when we look at the book of Revelation, we see doom and gloom and judgment. We forget it ends with a wedding. It ends with celebration. This wedding. This wedding for God's people if you're trusting in Christ in faith. And if not, then all you have, all you're awaiting is judgment and damnation. Because this Christ will come and wipe out his enemies, his bride's enemies, to make way for the wedding. But it's not too late. He is approaching even now. So I implore you, I plead with you, trust in this king. You have no hope apart from him. Trust in him by faith for the forgiveness of your sins and then join with the church to sing his praises until he returns. To sing, oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Let's pray. 
Father, we long for this great day. And I pray our hearts are filled with joy and hope as we meditate on that great day, as we consider who your son is, who he's already revealed himself to be, and how glorious he will be when he returns. Father, help us to put any competition out of our hearts, to repent, to leave this world behind, and enjoy what Christ offers us in himself. Father, help us to see that nothing compares to him. And help us rejoice that we are his beloved forever. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.